0: From Oregon to Florida, Nevada to New York, this is American Radio Journal. On this edition, more and more states are expanding school choice opportunities for students and their parents. Jason Bedrick from the Heritage Foundation is here with an update. With inflation still at record high levels and interest rates continuing to rise, the economic state of the union is not well. Scott Parkinson from the Club for Growth has the real story. President Joe Biden delivered the State of the Union address this past week. Eric Baim of Reason Magazine has analysis. And add to the list of bad tax policies a so called wealth tax that would tax income not yet actually realized. Jonathan Williams from the American Legislative Exchange Council is here with an American Radio Journal Commentary. I'm Loman Henry and welcome to American Radio Journal. Parental involvement in K-12 education is on the upswing and a number of states have been expanding school choice options. Jason Bedrick is a research fellow with the Center for Education Policy at the Heritage Foundation. He has been tracking progress in advancing education freedom and joins us now with an update. Jason, welcome to American Radio Journal. Jason, the movement to give parents more choice when it comes to their children's education, more education freedom for students, has been around for many decades now. But it seems like lately there have been more successes has there been a change in approach, a change in strategy that's creating this forward motion?
1: Yes, there has. The school choice movement was originally a very bipartisan movement. We saw the first modern voucher program enacted in the early 1990s uh, in Wisconsin for the city of Milwaukee. And that was a collaboration between the Republican Governor, Tommy Thompson, and a Democratic Assemblywoman, Polly Williams. And it's been a, a bipartisan efforts, at least from the advocacy side, for about three decades. Uh, The thing is, though, really, the Republican Party has been much more supportive in terms of actually passing bills. And the Democratic Party has been less so because of the very powerful influence of the teachers' unions that they've just not been able to to shake, even though it's low-income minorities who have the highest levels of support for these policies, because in the, in the current system, assigned by the location of the home that you can afford, those are the families that have the least access to school choice currently. In recent years, though, there has been a shift where the movement is tapping into parental concerns about what is going on in the public school system, whether that's biological males being put on female sports teams or in female locker rooms, whether it's students, the schools are socially transitioning behind parents' backs, calling them pronouns that don't align with their biological sex or names that aren't on their birth certificate without asking permission or even informing parents, policies that are teaching critical race theory in the classroom. Over and over, parents, are becoming concerned that not only are schools not reflecting their values, but are actually actively undermining them. And so there have been a number of organizations, the Heritage Foundation, for example, American Federation for Children and others, that have been tapping into those parental concerns and highlighting the gap between what parents want and what public schools are actually providing. And that's been fueling a tremendous uh, wave of school choice legislation.
0: Has this been something that was put into high gear because of the COVID-19 pandemic? Did you find that a lot of parents, when the children were at home learning remotely, these things came to their attention where they hadn't before?
1: Yes. And a lot of these families that are now very much school choice supporters didn't become so overnight. So first, a lot of families were going to their local school boards saying, hey, it's time to reopen the schools. We see that the private schools down the street have been open a lot longer their kids and their families aren't getting sick, we're ready to come back. But uh, they found that the local schools that they thought were accountable to them uh, were actually much more accountable to special interests like the teachers unions that, that are in the system. And so if families wanted to come back and the teachers unions wanted to stay closed, in areas where the teachers unions are stronger, they stayed closed. And so families started to go to the state legislature about that. At the same time, families started to notice when their kids are doing Zoom school in the living room that funny things were going on in the classroom, things that they didn't expect, that there might be a rainbow flag or other political advocacy going on in the classroom that didn't align with what they wanted. So they started to do some digging. Maybe they found some uh, sexually explicit books that were in elementary public school libraries or that were actually being assigned to students without parents being informed. Over and over, parents were noticing these things. And when they would go to the school boards, uh, very often, they were just shut down, ignored. The policymakers would just hope they would go away. Many of them ran for school board. Some actually took some school boards over. But even there, they found that they were still very much dependent on the administrators that are running the system for information. And so all of that parental frustration turned into support for Having school choice, uh, both as an immediate escape hatch, but also because a lot of families recognized even if they wanted to stay in their public school system and fix it and, and have things go back to the way they were before, they had a lot more leverage if the school boards knew that they could take their money and leave if they weren't satisfied. As long as they were a captive audience, they could be ignored. But if they could go somewhere else, then they were forced to be reckoned with.
0: There, as you've put it, has been a surge here in school choice victories around the country. Can you talk about a couple of the most notable school choice victories and what they involved? Yes,
1: so far this year, the main two have been in Iowa and in Utah. So, Two years ago, you had West Virginia expand education savings accounts to all students. Uh, these are accounts that tap into the, the state's per pupil allocation of uh, public school funding, and it follows the child to the learning environment of their choice. That could be a private school. Uh, the funds could also be used for things like tutoring, textbooks, homeschool curricula, online learning, special needs therapy, and more. Arizona, which had had the first ESA policy enacted a decade ago, last year expanded it to all students uh, in K-12, and this year, Iowa did the same thing, and then just a few days later, Utah enacted something very similar. It's called a a multi-use scholarship. It works like an education savings account. Uh, All it's lacking is the ability to roll funds over from year to year to save for future expenses, but otherwise still gives families lots of options when it comes to providing their children with the education they deserve.
0: Well, good news on the school choice front. We have been talking with Jason Bedrick, who is a research fellow in the Center for Education Policy, that at the Heritage Foundation based in Washington, D.C. Jason, tell us a bit about Heritage. Also, where can folks go to read more?
1: folks can go to heritage.org. The Heritage Foundation is a conservative think tank. Our mission is to formulate and promote public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, and traditional American values.
0: Jason Bedrick of the Heritage Foundation. Jason, thank you for your time today. Thank you for having me. Scott Parkinson at the Club for Growth has had his eye on Capitol Hill, where President Biden has delivered his State of the Union address. We also had that Chinese spy balloon float over the country. We're going to talk about all these things. Scott, good to have you here.
2: Great to be back, Loman. Thanks for having me.
0: The State of the Union, Scott, of course, touched on a number of different topics, but let's focus in on economics. The president did talk about that, but despite what he said, we still have record high inflation, we have interest rates on the rise. What is your take about where this economy is headed?
2: President Biden addressing the the country on our economic situation, he tried to show this, this rosy economic outlook where everything is headed toward a robust recovery and we're adding record numbers of jobs following the coronavirus pandemic and gas prices have fallen faster than ever before well we have to keep in mind what actually happened over the last several years and how many millions of jobs the economy shed how fast and how high energy prices spiked in the United States last summer leading to really a 40-year high in inflation what the Fed Reserve has been doing with several interest rate hikes. And the bottom line is, I don't really think we're in a situation right now where we can say that the economy is headed toward a strong recovery. I think that we're still headed toward what could be a terrible recession. Right now, the core inflation numbers are holding steady. And we're looking at energy prices that have decreased since last August. But we're headed into the season in America where energy demands will increase. And we're still not the levels of production that we need in order to drive prices down. So I predict that in May, June, July, those energy costs, those gas prices that Americans sort of fear whenever we go to uh, hit the pump, those things are going to climb back up over $4 a gallon throughout the country. And what does that mean for discretionary income? What does it mean for going out to the restaurant and, and getting that occasional meal, going to the movies, all those things that also help drive the economic outlook. I'm, I'm concerned about those jobs. And there's a lot of temporary jobs that also head into the summer that folks are demanding that they get 15 20 even $25 an hour for what used to be a minimum wage position, but there's just not a lot of demand for that type of job on these low-skilled workers that really just want to work during the high school season or, are off from college and are just looking to make a few bucks. Right now, I think there's a lot of people that say it's not just really worth it for me. And we've also sort of created this culture among young workers. I think that these kids are are more focused on not working and not being a productive member of society.
0: Taking a look at the energy needs of the country, Scott, which you touched upon here, has there been any indication, either in the State of the Union speech or otherwise, from President Biden and his administration, that they might be willing to let up or reverse some of the policies that have really restricted the development of the nation's energy resources?
2: Well, it's something that House Republicans certainly are trying to tackle. And whenever you've got must-pass legislation going through Congress, whether it'll be the debt limit increase that could happen early this summer or another funding fight at the end of the fiscal year, September 30th, there's all sorts of opportunities to bring these important issues to the negotiating table. It doesn't need to be just a pure negotiation on fiscal reforms. We can have pro-growth reforms that provide for decreased regulation. There's Senator Mike Lee from Utah has talked a lot about including the RAINS Act, which would provide for really reduced regulation and ensuring that there's an affirmative approval from Congress before we enact major rules that restrict economic innovation and activity and productivity in our country. So I I think that there is a lot of talk about the energy sector, just given how much it drives inflation. And if you need proof in the pudding, look at last summer. I think last summer was, was really a lost summer of productivity and a lost summer of really getting the economy back on track because of inflation. We've talked previously on the show about the levels of inflation is really wiping out an entire month of your salary. It's money that just basically evaporates. It's that hidden tax on the American worker and on the family. And so that trickles down throughout the entire economy, especially when you're looking at the level of inflation that we've got today.
0: The other major point of discussion over the last week or so, Scott, was this Chinese spy balloon that managed to make its way the whole way across the continental United States before it was shot down. Has there been any repercussions on the Biden administration for allowing that to occur?
2: Well, this week, the Biden administration briefed senators on what they think happened. And the bottom line is we knew the flight pattern of the balloon. We knew that it was headed from the northwest all the way down to the southeast. And there was really only one thing they could do to stop it, and that was to take down the balloon. And instead of doing that over U.S. airspace within the the continental U.S., and it actually went over Alaska, too, but it didn't get noticed until Montana by the the American people. So it flew right over a bunch of really sensitive locations, including military bases. And the type of data that was collected and sent back to the Chinese is something I think that the intelligence community is really going to grapple with for the next several weeks. Obviously, the balloon was shot down when it entered the ocean space right off of South Carolina, North Carolina, and they're collecting the debris from the wreckage. But I I think it's a real concern when you talk about Joe Biden, who kind of threw the intelligence and, and national security apparatus under the bus by saying, oh, I ordered it to be shot down on Wednesday when it was safe to do so. Well, they didn't shoot it down for several days, and when it did come down, obviously it went over an ocean where there's a lot of fishermen and stuff. So to say that it wasn't going to come down and come over the top of people uh, and still take it down the way that they did, I think, is, is sort of uh, short-sighted. They should have taken it down immediately, ended the intelligence gathering by the Chinese, and instead we're going to be paying for this thing with our own national security threats in the
0: coming months. Scott Parkinson at the Club for Growth. Scott, tell us a bit about the club.
2: The Club for Growth is a membership organization united in the idea of economic freedom, liberty, and opportunity. We're based out of Washington, D.C. If anybody wants to learn more about the Club for Growth, check us out at clubforgrowth.org. You can actually become a
0: member for free. Scott Parkinson from the Club for Growth. Scott, we'll talk with you next week. Thank you. Thank you. President Joe Biden offered his version of the State of the Union this past week during his annual address to a joint session of Congress. For analysis of the speech, we turn now to Eric Baim of Reason Magazine.
3: It was one of the few memorable lines from Tuesday's State of the Union address. President Joe Biden declaring in the House chamber that competition is essential to a properly functioning economy.
4: Look, Capitalism, without competition, is not capitalism, it's extortion, it's exploitation.
3: Okay, that's a bit of a cliche, but hey, State of the Union speeches are full of those. What made this line so particularly jarring to me was that it was delivered just about 10 minutes or so after Biden had extolled to bipartisan applause the use of government power to shield American companies from foreign competition by tightening so-called "buy american rules for federal infrastructure projects. Doing so, the president argued, was not only going to strengthen the economy, but was the patriotic and upstanding thing to do. And I think the tension between those two moments isn't just the result of poor speech writing or a temporary lack of clarity from the president. It's actually a nice illustration of a fundamental contradiction that has been at the center of a lot of the Biden administration's economic policies over the past few years. Even as the White House and its Democratic allies in Congress are pressing to ban non-compete agreements for workers and bring antitrust cases against Google and Amazon, they are also ratcheting up protectionism for American manufacturers of everything from drywall to advanced computer chips. Is competition essential to capitalism? Of course it is. But the Biden administration's view seems to be that that really depends on who is doing the competing. Hi, folks. I'm Eric Bain with Reason Magazine. Thanks for joining us on this edition of American Radio Journal. This week, we're zeroing in on this contradiction, this this one element that came up a couple of times during Biden's State of the Union address on Tuesday. And really looking at the fact that I think for the Biden administration, for the president, Competition is essential to capitalism, as he said. But that's only true in situations where the White House isn't trying to ban competition. Take, for example, the fact that Biden says when companies force employees to sign non-compete agreements, that's bad because it limits competition. In July, Biden ordered the Federal Trade Commission to find ways to curtail the unfair use of non-compete clauses and other clauses or agreements that may unfairly limit worker mobility. With federal action expected in the near future, Biden drove the point home in the State of the Union address on Tuesday, promising that banning non-competes would mean that companies have to compete for workers. And in the same speech, Biden called on Congress to pass the PRO Act, that's the Protecting the Right to Organize Act, which would effectively ban workers in many professions from becoming independent contractors. So on one hand, worker mobility and increased competition for labor are good, except when they're not, apparently. And once you start looking for this, you actually see this contradiction pop up over and over again in almost every major policy that the Biden administration has pursued. Take the Inflation Reduction Act, for example. It's a poorly named bill, but Biden touted it on Tuesday night for being the most significant investment ever to tackle the climate crisis. And one major component of that law is a 30% tax credit to offset the installation of solar panels on the roofs of American homes and businesses. It's a policy that's clearly intended to spur economic activity and, yes, competition in the rooftop solar market. But at the same time, the Biden administration has extended Trump-era tariffs on imported solar panels and their component parts, which of course drives up the cost of those products. The Biden administration says technically that those products are somehow a national security concern, but it's pretty obvious that the tariffs are really just a way to protect American manufacturers from unwanted competition. In a similar way, the 2021 infrastructure bill poured massive federal subsidies into expanding broadband networks. But the bill specifies that that money can only be funneled to companies that build fiber optic networks, not those that provide wireless internet connections because competition is apparently bad, except when it's good, like in the meat and poultry supply chains, where the Biden administration is currently dumping huge amounts of federal subsidies because of what the president says is a lack of competition, hurting consumers, producers, and the economy. So we need more competition, except when that competition is too competitive. Like, what if airlines try to compete with one another by lowering ticket prices, but make up some of that difference by charging customers an added fee when they want to choose where to sit? Well, that requires government intervention, obviously. Baggage fees are bad enough, Biden said on Tuesday. Airlines can't treat your child like a piece of baggage. So consumers can't be trusted to sort through different pricing options to decide which is best for their needs. But it's also unfair for a business to be too good at anticipating their customers' desires. Because one of the main arguments behind democratic attempts to use antitrust laws against Amazon and other big tech companies is that these firms promote some products or services at the expense of other comparable items. You know, like grocery stores do when they put a certain product on display at the end of an aisle. But somehow it's different because Amazon does this online instead of in a physical store. Biden's Department of Justice, meanwhile, is pushing an antitrust case against Google because the company supposedly dominates online advertising, even though the company's share of online ad revenue has been declining for the last year or so, thanks to, yes, increased competition. All other examples aside, probably the best illustration of this contradiction is Biden's Buy American rules for federal infrastructure jobs. There's really no denying the fact that these Buy American mandates increase the cost of construction projects. There might be political benefits and economic drawbacks that we could spend probably another half hour wading through. But what really matters for our purposes today is that Buy American laws are fundamentally anti-competitive. In the marketplace for government procurement, Biden is saying less competition is desirable. There's nothing wrong with the drywall or concrete that might be made in Canada, but we're simply going to exclude it from consideration because it's not made in America. The frustrating thing about all of this is that Biden's not wrong when he says competition is essential to capitalism. And the really frustrating thing is that his policies are helping to create rather than prevent the exploitation that he says results from less competition in the marketplace. In this case, with the Buy American rules, it's the exploitation of taxpayers who will get less government built infrastructure than they otherwise would have received. So yeah, the president is right. Competition is essential. But now he should apply that thinking more consistently. For Reason Magazine, I'm Eric Baim. Check out our coverage of the State of the Union and everything else happening around the country this week at Reason.com. And catch me right back here next week on another edition of American Radio Journal.
0: As if there were not already enough taxes, some states are considering a wealth tax, which aims to tax income not yet actually received. Jonathan Williams from the American Legislative Exchange Council explains on this. American Radio Journal Commentary.
4: As my co-authors Arthur Laffer and Stephen Moore and I have covered for now 15 years in our publication, Rich States, Poor States, the Alec Laffer State Economic Competitiveness Index, not all tax plans are created equally. As a few recent proposals show, not even the bad tax plans are created equally. While states all across America are moving to reduce their tax rates and become flat tax states or looking to even eliminate their income taxes in an effort to become more competitive for job creation and growth, a group of eight states, California, Connecticut, Hawaii, Illinois, Maryland, Minnesota, New York, and Washington, let's call them a poor state alliance, has emerged and is looking to move radically in the other direction. They have picked up where Senators Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren left off at the federal level and recently announced legislation that would implement a wealth tax, as if most states aren't hemorrhaging enough residents already. You may remember that Senators Sanders and Warren proposed a federal wealth tax while running for president in 2020 for the Democrat nomination. The proposal ended up being part of President Joe Biden's failed Build Back Better plan in the fall of 2021. And the U.S. Finance Committee had introduced a plan in the Senate for a wealth tax on taxpayers with more than $100 million in annual income or more than $1 billion in assets for three consecutive years. But the plan was ultimately scrapped as West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin decided not to support the so-called Build Back Better plan. And the proposal didn't rear its ugly head again when the budget negotiations resumed in 2022. Now, the wealth tax is dubious for many reasons, starting with the very nature of what it taxes. A wealth tax is a tax on the appreciation of assets, both tangible and intangible, and accumulation of those assets, uh, meaning property and stocks. That means that any increase in the value of assets is subject to taxation without a transaction or realization occurring. Opponents tout the wealth tax as a tax on income, thereby justifying it at the federal level, at least under the 16th Amendment to the Constitution. However, this is an egregious misinterpretation of the word, as quote-unquote income is received as a result of realization. In the early days of the 16th Amendment to the Constitution, over a 100 years ago, the U.S. Supreme Court upheld the notion that income needed to be realized in order to be taxed. But since when has the Constitution been a deterrent to the progressive left? It surely isn't for this poor state alliance, as several of the plans in these states are either a violation of the United States Constitution or of their own constitutions in those states, or maybe both. California not only wants to tax wealthy households, but they want to keep paying the piper through an unconstitutional exit tax long after they followed more than 300,000 other Americans who have fled the state over the last 12 months alone. Think about that for a minute. Now, there's Washington State. The Emerald State's Constitution explicitly prohibits graduated taxes on property, which is defined to include everything, whether tangible or intangible, subject to ownership. The wealth tax would be a flagrant violation of this provision. What's more is that the state isn't even finished with this legal fight over the constitutionality of the recently passed capital gains tax, which hinges on the very same provision. Perhaps someone in Olympia ought to deliver a copy of the state constitution to the lawmakers proposing these egregious taxes. Constitutional permissibility aside, the wealth tax also creates a logistical nightmare for tax collection, and any revenue projections would inevitably be wildly inaccurate. Asset values, especially stock values, are naturally volatile, as anyone with an IRA or 401k has witnessed in recent months. One could really result in appreciation in one-year depreciation. There's virtually no reliability in revenue collection at that point. Furthermore, the lack of realization creates a payment problem for the taxpayer. The taxman demands money, so pay up, and taxpayers will either have to pay out of pocket with the cash flow or cash in their capital gains, a process that will then likely subject them to even more taxation through the capital gains tax. No matter how you look at it, the wealth tax is a killer of prosperity as it disincentivizes investment with prejudice. The members of this poor state alliance are already seeing a mass exodus of Americans looking for economic freedom and prosperity in states like Florida, Texas, and North Carolina, just to name a few. The very last thing they need is a tax that's going to drive more of their economy out of state. But alas, it looks like that'll be the first thing they do if progressives continue to push for this killer of a wealth tax. For more information on what sets apart rich states versus poor states, go to richstatespoorstates.org. For American Radio Journal, I'm Jonathan Williams. Thanks for listening.
0: American Radio Journal is heard on public affairs-minded radio stations all across the country, including WREDAM in Westbrook, Maine, WFCAAM in French Camp, Mississippi, along with KXLIAM and FM in Dublin, Georgia. American Radio Journal is produced weekly by the Lincoln Institute of Public Opinion Research, Incorporated. The Lincoln Institute is completely funded through the generosity of individuals, corporations, and philanthropic foundations which underwrite the cost of this program. Comments and opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Lincoln Institute or of this radio station. Learn more about American Radio Journal and hear expanded versions of some interviews aired on this program. Please visit our website, AmericanRadioJournal.com. I'm Loman Henry. Thank you for listening to American Radio Journal. American Radio Journal, lighting the brush fires of freedom.